0: What's working on purpose anyway? Now, here is your host, Dr. Elise Cortez.
1: Welcome back to the Working on Purpose program. Thanks for tuning in again this week. I'm your host, Dr. Elise Cortez, joining you live from Dallas, which is home base for me. If you've been tuning in for a while, you know this program is a thought leadership series that enlightens and inspires listeners with insights from distinguished business leaders and subject matter experts. Our conversations are designed to elevate your thinking and entice you to take an enlightened and inspirational approach toward leadership and business. Before we get into today's program, I've got two announcements for you. One, um, September marks the launch of Gusto Now, which is a growth and transformation e-learning platform dedicated to awakening meaning, passion, inspiration, and purpose in people, leadership, and organizations. It features leadership development and other professional development courses available to individuals and companies in English, Spanish, and Portuguese. You can learn more at gusto nowcom Secondly, I want to share with you that my book, Purpose Ignited, How Inspirational Leaders Unleashed. Um, Ignite Passion and Elevate Cause is due out November 17th. It's now sitting on Amazon waiting. You can pre-order it. I wrote the book to turn readers on and ignite their passion, inspiration, and purpose to make a contribution worthy of their one precious life and radically improve the workplace as we know it. Now onto this week's program. Our guest today is Bob Chapman, who has recently been named the number three CEO in the world in an Inc. magazine article and celebrated for being very intentional about using his platform as a business leader to build a better world. He is the CEO of St. Louis, Missouri-based Barry Weimiller, a three billion dollar global capital equipment business worth with more than twelve thousand heart counts, as they like to call them. He's also the co-author, alongside Dr. Raj Sisodia, of Everybody Matters, The Extraordinary Power of Caring for Your People Like Family. He joins you today from Wisconsin. Bob, welcome to Working on Purpose. I think you might be muted, Bob. Can I hear you? Yes. There we are. Welcome hey. to Working on Purpose. This is the
2: perfect place for you. Uh, I can't imagine a better spot having met you just a few weeks ago
1: for this chance to share online some of our passion for the people we have the privilege of leaving. I I am so happy to share you with the world, Bob, because the world desperately needs you. Um, Viewers that that are watching this, here's the book that I I read to prepare for this conversation. Um, So Bob, you know, as you know, I read the book cover to cover, and I think it makes really good sense for us to open this conversation with one of the email exchanges that you and I had, where we were talking about the leadership crisis that Tom Friedman has identified and its according opportunity, which also really aligns with the approach you take at Barry Weymuller. Will you start there?
2: Yes, I, I, all of us are, I think, genuinely concerned about the combination of issues from COVID-19 to the social unrest to kind of the nature of the political discourse we have in this country. And so many thoughtful people I know are genuinely concerned right now for where all of this is taking us. I would say to you, though, for the last 10 years, I've been talking about a bigger crisis to me, a, a, a crisis of humanity, if, if, because, as I mentioned to you, 88% of all people felt they work, feel they work for an organization that does not care about them, and they feel the way they go home and treat their family, uh, behave in their community, somewhat with this level of not feeling valued. So, to me, uh, when uh, this crisis hit, and Bill Urey of Harvard, World Peace Negotiator, called me, He's again genuinely concerned about kind of the direction. If you add all these things together, in terms of where are we going and what does this mean to the future of our society? And we talked about uh, the issue is that the problem is people don't feel valued, they feel used for somebody else's success. Mm-hmm. And so we had bubbling under the surface of this strong economy, world peace, but you know, we had the lowest unemployment uh, in decades uh, prior to this so people had jobs they had money but so bill and i talked about the fact that we have a world that we debate we talk to each other we want not know how to listen and then a few hours bill sends me an article that tom friedman wrote in the new york times again commenting on the same issue that we have a, a, a poverty of dignity in other words the underlying issue uh, is that We can give people jobs, we can give them money, uh, but they don't feel valued. And what we need to do is we need to focus on giving people dignity, okay, which is the issue that is under the surface of all the frustration, all the social unrest. People don't feel valued, they feel used. And when you don't feel valued, it's hard to care for others when you don't feel cared for yourself. So Tom Friedman's uh, article, and, and Tom goes on to say, after he eloquently talks about The Poverty of Dignity, is he talks about the need for deep listening, okay? Now that is, as you know, the nonprofit center that I have for the last 10 years, we've been taking to communities and the United States Air Force all over the country, the skills of empathetic listening, so we can begin to see, not the superficial aspects of people, but the beauty of every human being that God created. So, uh, Tom kind of just put all the pieces together eloquently, And it was profoundly meaningful to me to see somebody of Tom's substance see kind of the issue beyond kind of superficial demonstrations, protests, issues. It's a deeper issue. You know, we have a poverty of dignity. And that is, until we address that, we are simply putting Band-Aids on cancer, okay? Mm -hmm. We've got to get to the point that people feel valued and they feel more comfortable valuing others.
1: What a great way to start, Bob. So what you've done so beautifully is really presents the enormity of the problem and the opportunity here, which is exactly where I wanted you to start. So looking at you today, you are an incredibly accomplished man. You've done some really remarkable things with your team over the last several decades, but you've along the way had some really what I would call arresting insights and experiences that have helped make you into who you are. And I wanted to share it with our listeners and viewers because looking at you today, it can be kind of intimidating to go, how in the world can I become a guy like that? Right? So I want to share a few of the really key things that happened for you along the way that I read in your book and that I've gotten from some of our conversations. And I know one of them is when you were in college, you became a parent and there was something about that experience that opened something in you, radically altered the way you were living and working. What happened and why is parenthood so important to you? You know, um, I found out my... um sophomore year that uh, a girl
2: that I had dated in high school, we went to colleges nearby that she became pregnant and we immediately got married. And I was, prior to that, I was a very average student. I mean, I barely made grades, you know, my first year was very awkward at Cornell College in Iowa and I transferred to Indiana, barely with grades to transfer and I was a very unfocused, normal kid, okay? With no drive other than, you know, and when you find yourself all of a sudden being a parent and responsible for other lives, I don't remember thinking this, but my behavior said this, all of a sudden I went from at best a C student to a straight A student, okay? And it gave me purpose, it gave me meaning because I had the responsibility of other lives in my hand. Again, nobody sat down and said, Bob, you need to do this. It just that responsibility came to me, and my behavior validated it because I started studying. I started getting straight A's. I I worked hard in the summer to you know earn income to stay in college. So I always say, for my greatest challenges came my greatest personal growth. Mm -hmm. Had I not found myself being a father at age nineteen and twenty, my focus on education—what I would have gotten out of—so. I was intended to happen this because we got a phenomenal son into our life and I and I took life seriously for the first time. I, I was always kind of a class clown, a jokester, the on focus. You know, I was just a nice kid that people liked, but I, I was going nowhere. And that gave me focus. So I always say to people for my greatest challenges, I am my greatest personal growth. When mm-hmm. I accepted responsibility for my life and making something of that.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, that was important, right? Because I, I, I do, I do tend to believe that the the only way we grow is through severe discomfort or pain. <laughs> it doesn't happen when we're comfortably seated on the couch or watching a movie. It just never happens that. Um, so okay, so. Then along the way, somewhere in your 20s, you joined your, your father at Bay, um, Barry Miller, and you got increasing uh, responsibility, did some amazing things, and then you find yourself at age 30 suddenly in charge when your father had a heart attack. So you became, what, the C- CEO and chairman of the board at age 30? Yes. Um, like? I mean, how did you how did you step into that? And, I mean, talk about another blindsiding adversity. You know, I a tiny bit of background. Again, I got a degree in accounting.
2: Uh, Intended to go into public accounting, went to Michigan and got an MBA. So I have a very traditional business orientation. Yes. And I was at Pricewaterhouse and all of a sudden my dad realized, so we had not had a, a good relationship. We just, you know, my dad worked hard and I was more related to my mom. So all of a sudden I'm in business school, I'm getting A's and my dad says, oh my God, this kid's working out. And my dad had some health issues and he had some struggles running this 100-year-old family company that he'd stepped into in, in 1953. And so my dad started calling me and asking me over to help him with decisions. And one day he said to me, would you consider working at Barry Waymiller? Uh, I need somebody I can trust. So my title, and, and I never thought of working for this family company it was broken, a lot of alcoholism, a lot of you know, financial struggles. But I I was just at a point in time in my career I was willing to take that. So I stepped into Barry Waymiller with the title, Somebody My Dad Could Trust, okay? Million-dollar company, financially weak, uh, old technology that my dad had kept alive since he invested in the 50s. So anyway, I worked with my dad for six years, but he was tired, physically tired from his years of hard work, and he just handed me things every day. So the beauty of it, at least, is I had... A six-year management development program, self-created. I worked in manufacturing. I worked in sales. I worked in customer service. I worked in engineering, you know, all by my initiative. So when I woke up one day and found out my dad had died of a heart attack, the night before dinner, he had said to me, Bob, you're virtually running the company. I want to make you executive vice president. That was the last thing he said to me before he died. suddenly a surprise of a heart attack. And so the point is I was ready to take this on and again second crisis my dad dies i'm 30 years old and the first person i meet is the bankers who pulls our loan well, yes, I, I remember, remember this the 60 year old guy with this marginal account but they couldn't trust this 30 year old kid again the second great thing that happened to me because i took the stimulus of my dad dying and the bank's pulling us i said i ain't going down this way and i grabbed a hold of that business and in the nine i, I ran it nine months of the first 12 months because my dad was alive for the first three months of our financial year we had the most profitable year in our history, okay? Because I've had, again, this got a little bit the stimulus of when I found out I was gonna be a father. I just said, I don't remember thinking this, I just grabbed ahold of that business and I turned it around dramatically and and, and created the future. So that's six years of of my own self-development working in every part of the business. I knew how the business worked by the time my dad passed away and somewhat in response to my dad's trust in me, someone response to my challenges again I'm, I'm i want to be responsible i grabbed hold of that company and began building it so again that's that that's how i began again uh very challenged 18 million dollar business financially very weak uh but it gave me the challenge and the opportunity to really uh, invest myself a thousand percent in every aspect and try and create a future for the the people the business the stakeholders of
1: the company so that's how it began Okay, so uh, the, uh, that's that's amazing, right? And it's so important to talk about the, the adversity and what what was dropped into your lap. And then along the way, what I what I think is amazing is today you measure success at at Barry Weilmuller by the li- that the the touch uh, by the way you touch the lives of people. But that wasn't always the case, as you say in your book and in our conversations. You had a lot of lessons that you had to learn away from classic business management. And from what I could tell, Bob, there's at least three things in your book that are pretty important that became touchstones or arresting insights for you um, that I'd love for you to share a little bit about with our listeners. And so the, the, the first one that I don't think these are in the right order, um, but one of them was the 1979 March madness conversation with that company. And you discovered that they were having so much fun at 7:30 in the morning and at, at eight o'clock, everything stopped. The fun, the fun parade stopped and you made, you noticed that. So that's one of them that I think I noticed. Can you talk about that?
2: Yeah, that, you know, so I, so I want you to listen. I had a very traditional focus on business with all the tools, layoffs, downsizing, cutting costs. You know, those are all just the tools we're taught. Those were what I experienced in business that when you went to meetings with other people, we all talked about right-sizing, downsizing, eliminating waste, et cetera. And, and so my first half of my career was defined by it, but I was in 1997, so about 20 years into my career, and I've started acquiring companies. and. I had an opportunity to buy a major company in South Carolina, about a fifty million dollar company. And it was significant to me. I flew down there to be there, and in March of 1997, everybody knows what happens in March. Yeah, right. So I walk in to have a cup of coffee before the office opens. I'm just, you know, I'm just having a cup of coffee. I have nothing on my mind other than this is a, my first day in this new job. Nobody knew me. I didn't know them. And they were talking about what teams won, where they were in the office pool in terms of March Madness, and they were having fun. Again, I don't remember any of this at the time, but as I reconstruct how I possibly had that experience, I was able to see this. And so the closer it got to eight o'clock, you could just see the fun go out of their body. What my mind said that day is, why can't work be fun? Why call it work, okay? Why would people have more fun talking about something like winning fifty dollars or twenty-five dollars and then where they're gonna spend eight hours a day, there they don't enjoy it. And so what came of that is that I said to myself that day, why can't business be fun? Because that's when people express their gifts the most, when they're having fun. And I began that I walked from that coffee area into a meeting with our customer service team, which was a $21 million product line out of the $50 million, very important product line. I was going to meet with the team. I had nothing on my mind but to meet with them. And out of me popped because of what I'd experienced. Never tried it. Never thought of it. Nobody suggested. I said, we're going to play a game. Whoever sells the most parts wins. And if the team makes the team goal, the team wins. And all I wanted to do was have fun. I mean, I had no experience. No, you know, no expectations other than, let's try it. And they had 21 reasons why it would not work the way we're structured, organized. And I had 21 reasons why it would work. And we began. And revenue jumped by 20% and joy jumped by 1,000%, you know, 13 weeks later. And I went back and I said, I don't understand. I just wanted you to have fun. And I said, we are. We're having a lot of fun. And we're you know, and we're working together better because we want to win as a team, we wanna win individually. So that was that was the birth of truly human leadership. I saw people have fun. I saw the way they treated each other when they had fun. I saw the way they treated our customer when they had fun. So just uniquely, this game I created, which had an individual and team component, created those people knew every day exactly how they were doing and what they needed to do the next day to win, okay? They'd talk to their families. They would talk to their colleagues. They'd text each other at night. And I, I, again, it just popped out of me at that meeting. So that was the beginning. That was the first transformation because we began saying, what did we learn here? What, how did, we can't manage people, but we can, we can inspire people through games where they have
1: fun. So it all created by March Madness. That was the first. Okay. Now, the second one, was it the pastor or the wedding? Pastor. Okay, so then that second bit where you recognize that your pastor has has people for forty minutes each week, but you have them for forty hours, and you had a reckon, you had a realization about what to do with that. So say more about that well, insight.
2: the mentor of my church, Reverend Ed Salmon, was an incredibly thoughtful person. We had a vibrant young church because he he just had this ability to help see kind of meaning in life and look through the clouds and see the sunshine. He just, I mean our class was always full between church services. And one day at church after his sermon, I had again my second revelation and I looked at my wife Cynthia and I said, Cynthia, Ed has only got us for one hour a week. We have people for 40 hours a week. We are 40 times more powerful to help people live lives of meaning and purpose than Ed can. Mm -hmm. I walked out of the church, I can show you the spot on the concrete I said that day something I profoundly believe. I said business could be the most powerful force for good in the world if we simply cared about the people we had the privilege of leaving. have them in our span of care for 40 hours a week and the way we send them home will affect their health and the way they treat their family. So that was a second major revelation for me because it never occurred to me that business could be a force for good. It was a force for economic gain, shareholder value, profits, growth and sales. I never saw the human side of business. I saw people as functions for my success. I never saw them. But that day at church, I realized that business is the most powerful force for good in the world. Could be the most powerful f- force for good in the
1: world. Mm, I love it, all of it. Okay, then, then the third one happened at a wedding where you're, where you're witnessing a father that you know give away his daughter, and something happened there. We're at a wedding, a good friend, uh, daughter was getting
2: married, and uh, uh, as he was walking her down the aisle, I just, you know, I, I'm a, you can tell now I'm an observer of human behavior, and I was looking around this, this tent, uh, this beautiful tent set up for the wedding, and everybody's was oohing and owing how beautiful this young lady was. And how proud his father, her father was walking down the aisle at this ceremony. And when they got to the altar, uh, my friend took the daughter of his hand and said, her mother and I give our daughter to be wed to this young man. And he goes out and sits next to his wife. And they hold each other's hands to watch the ceremony continue. Again, I had this all of a sudden realization. Oh, my God. That's not what having to walk two of my precious daughters down the aisle. I knew that's what the father was told to say in the ceremony, but that's not what the father wanted to say in the ceremony. What he wanted to say, every father wants to say is, look at young man, her mother and I brought this precious young lady into this world, we have given her everything we could possibly give her so she can be who she's intended to be. And I expect you young man, as I expect her of you, that you will allow her to continue to grow." to be the person she's intended to be, do you understand that young man? That's what every father wants to say as he gives his precious daughter away a ceremony. And then I went to the next step, which is the powerful one. All of a sudden, I said to myself in the service, all 12,000 people who work for us around the world are somebody's precious child, just like that young lady and young man who simply want to know that who they are and what they do matters. And that day, I no longer looked at people as functions. I didn't introduce somebody as an engineer, an accountant, that's your receptionist, that's my assistant. I realized they are somebody's precious child that's placed in my care. That is the most profound revelation. And the way these happened, at least, you know, from why can't business be fun, business is the powerful source for good, to everybody's somebody's precious child. The way these built and, and just, this accountant from ferguson and opened my eyes and my heart to to, the powerful force for good in the world right now okay that we in business if we simply cared about if we saw everybody in our organization as somebody's precious child we could profoundly change the world and begin healing the world instead of breaking the world because remember before COVID 19 as i said 88% 88% of all people, even in a good economy, felt they work for a company that did not care about them, okay? Mm-hmm. And we know for a fact that the, way, the person you report to at work is more important to your health than your family doctor, and we know for a fact that the person you report to at work will have an impact on the way you go home and treat your family, behave in your community, behave in your country. So there's that revelation that everybody's somebody's precious child, and when you look at those people you interact with every day whether it's the grocery store the supermarket walking along the streets not as a function not as an individual, you know not as some uh, person along the street but as somebody's precious child it affects the way you treat and react to them because everybody is somebody's precious child. they're not functions and leadership is a privilege it is a like parenting is a privilege we all take parenting very seriously and i'm going to remind you and your listeners a lot of the ideas we have in truly human leadership came from Cynthia and my stewardship of our six children. You know, how do we know we're good parents? Well, I took it seriously having six kids. Cynthia and I went to classes. We tried to learn. And so much of what we've embraced in our leadership model is is what I learned in parenting. Because what is parenting? It's the stewardship of those precious lives that come into our families through birth, adoption, second marriage that we, everybody takes seriously. What is leadership? The stewardship of those precious lives and those Everybody's precious child that walks into our building somewhere in the world and simply wants to know that they matter. And we have the, the gift that will allow them to be who they're intended to be. And when you look and remember I was interviewed by Washington University organizational, professional, uh, organizational development professor several years ago. And after an hour and a half interview, they said to me, you're the first CEO I've ever talked to that never talked about their product. I said, in all due respect, we've been talking about our product for the last hour and a half. <laughs> I can't remember that. Uh, okay, I, I will not go to my grave proud of the machinery we build because we build big capital equipment. I will go to my grave proud of the people that built that machinery. Our people are our product. Okay, we build great people because we care deeply. We need an economic engine to build people. In our case, we build capital equipment. In other place, we have hospitals. But when we look at people as the focus, okay. We begin with our fundamental responsibility for the lives entrusted to us. That creates a tr- profound sense of responsibility
1: for the time you have those people in your care. Mm. I love every word of it, Bob. Let's grab our, our break here. I'm Dr. Elise Cortez, your host. We've been here with Bob Chapman. He is the CEO of St. Louis, Missouri-based Barry Waymeller a $3 billion global capital equipment business with more than 12,000 heart counts, as they like to call them. He's also the co-author alongside Dr. Raj Sissotia of Everybody Matters, The Extraordinary Power of Caring for Your People Like Family. He joins us today from Wisconsin. We've been talking a bit about just how he became the truly uh, human leader that he is today. After the break, we're going to talk about how he uniquely acquires companies and adopts them. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
0: Now, back to working on purpose.
1: Thanks for staying with us and welcome back to Working On Purpose. If you're just joining us, my guest is Bob Chapman, who has recently been named the number three CEO in the world in an Inc. Magazine article and celebrated for being very intentional about using his platform as a business leader to build a better world. He's the CEO of St. Louis, Missouri-based Barry Weymaller, a $3 billion global capital equipment business with more than 12,000 heart counts, as they like to call them, not head counts, but heart counts. I'm your host, Elise Cortez. So for this last segment here, Bob, I want to talk about two things. I want to talk about the the very unique way that you have acquired your adoptions over the the last few decades, 110 of them, and really what you're doing when you acquire those companies. And then I also want to talk a bit about um, the the way you're evangelizing truly human leadership in the world. So um, your strategy about acquisitions. Talk to us about maybe how it changed over over the years, but today it's really about buying businesses that nobody even I guess all along, buying businesses that nobody else wanted and putting them together thoughtfully. Have a very unusual approach to do this. Yeah. Let me go back. I I I got
2: my insights in doing acquisitions by studying a guy named Chuck Knight at Emerson Electric who built about a twenty four billion dollar company with a very uh, of buying mature businesses and mature industries and putting them together thoughtfully. So I had, had watched this, I'd viewed it. But I, I was stupid, when my dad died, I inherited this $18 million company that made returnable bottle washers for the brewing industry and pasteurizers for the beer industry. Uh, a, a very difficult old technology. And, and in 1984, I looked at my finance team and I said, guys, I'm proud of our, our hundred, virtually 100 year history But our history does not give us a future. Mm -hmm. I need to follow the examples of Amherst Electric and I need to go out and do acquisitions. And my finance team looked at me and said, Bob, great idea. Brilliant. one problem. And I said, What's that? And they said, We are broke. We have no money, Bob. Do you understand that? And again, I I want you my just so happens my personality, which is eternally optimistic. Uh, this was a defining moment. I looked at my finance team and I said, I didn't tell you that I needed money. I told you we need to do acquisitions, and unencumbered by the fact it's like going shopping without a wallet or a credit card, okay? I virtually left that meeting determined to start doing acquisitions with no experience, no money, and no credibility. And uh, so what do you buy when you have no money, no experience, no, you buy things nobody else wants, they will virtually give you. So I began in 1985 with a small acquisition in Denver, Colorado, an electronics company. And I ended up patching together probably four or five acquisitions between 1985 and 1986. Some in England, some over here, but virtually small. A, a, a British maker of, uh, of dairy equipment uh, for returnable dairy bottles in, in England. I mean, it's just a, really a patchwork. But an idea surfaced in 1986 that maybe we could spin off those acquisitions again, all troubled companies. Uh, and, and floated on the London Stock Exchange, which looked like a million to one. But again, determined, we set about that, we had a slight hope of doing that. We set ourselves about to, to do that, and we had, uh, we went from no chance to, it was 35 times oversubscribed, and Harvard wrote a case study on buying these broken little businesses, patching them together on the market, loved it, okay? And and again, Harvard wrote a case study, Darden wrote a case study. And so now, again, now we've done some, we've got some experience, and now all of a sudden we paid off our debt, we're financially secure, we spun off two-thirds of our company. Now I'm left again with a $20 million company, still own 30% of that public company, but I got this $20 million company that's again, bio washes and pasteurizers again. And I looked and I said, okay guys, we must have learned something. And I spent nine months thinking about what I learned. And I learned that I was pretty good at fixing broken businesses with certain characteristics. I'm not good at buying a high-tech company in, in a se- sexy market and growing it. I felt comfortable with businesses that had problems like us that I'd fixed. So when we started, uh, we had a vision of, uh, called s- strategy, growth, and uh, liquidity. That we would grow and very purposely diverse products, diverse markets. So I began doing acquisitions. Uh, now I had money from the public offering. And uh, we had a goal of getting to 100 million. That strategy, that business model design—that said I won't be dependent on anyone, customer, anyone, market, or anyone technology—because I don't want to hurt our people or our stakeholders—took us to 3 billion today in 110 acquisitions. So it has been dramatically, and our share price. Again, for your listeners, we have kind of a simulated market share price, privately held company, but we have a share price. We trade about 12 times uh, our EBITDA. uh, Has gone up. Over 15 percent a year for 25 years, because our acquisitions—I tend to buy things that most people don't want to touch. They want everybody wants to buy a successful, fast-growing company, and I. So we have—we feel we have brought life and saved many companies that had no future because the owners couldn't fix or didn't want to fix the problems, and we could, you know, again, like a surgeon. A surgeon is not going to do surgery unless he can see a way to save your life. I don't acquire a company unless I'm confident that I can save the life of that company. So now now we have today, again, 110 acquisitions, we're now more comfortable buying more successful companies. And we have bought more, but we started probably 70 out of 110 acquisitions were struggling companies. Uh, but again, our, our, our share price has grown dramatically, our financial strength has grown because we, we, the answer really, at least as I said, we saw value where other people didn't see it. Mm-hmm. Problems caused us to have to solve those problems or die. So we learned to solve what many people thought were problems because we had to solve them or we were going to die. And so we took that skill and we applied it for the first 15, 20 years. We migrated more to also buying some very good companies that we feel we can make better also. So it's allowed us, I always say the highest level of playing the game is when you can grow organically and through acquisitions. That is the highest level of the game. Uh, because it, it allows you to accelerate your growth, accelerate your access to markets. So we are today, and and again, a risk to your listeners, the primary responsibility of a business leader is to have a ground, to give the people in their span of care, a grounded sense of hope for the future. And that comes from a business model that is robust. Our business model in 08, 09, when General Electric was tested and failed, Bank of America was challenged dramatically. Many companies collapsed in 0809, our share price went up 11% without letting people go despite orders. So our business model was tested severely in 0809 and COVID, our company is in, in COVID operating very strongly and robustly right now. So it is a responsibility to the leader to make sure that you have a good business strategy to, to protect your people. There was an expression, you need to get the right people on the bus. I don't think it's quite right. I think the responsibility is to build a safe bus, which is your business model, and then have drivers who are your leaders who know where they're going and how to get there safely and then anybody you invite on the bus is going to get there just fine. So the responsibility of a leader is to make sure you have a business model like a bus that is safe, that your people feel safe, and that you and you test that through various circumstances so that you know that when you invite people in your organization they have a chance of having a meaningful life where they can relax and play their best game knowing that they're with an organization that values them. So that is a primary responsibility to, to give your people a grounded sense of hope for the future.
1: So I, if I understand it right, Bob, you have over the last uh, few decades acquired more than 110 companies. And if I have it right, you haven't you haven't sold off any of those companies. you kept them all?
2: Yeah, right. It's kind of like... Cynthia and I haven't decided to
1: sell any of our kids or grandkids. <laughs> just
2: the same thing. I got it. Well, uh, um- seriously, seriously, these are people. They're not businesses. They're people. You know, uh, why would you sell a business? Why would, you know, so I adopt businesses, you know, and it's like a church growing and opening up a church in a town. You know, I mean, seriously, we just acquired a company in Serbia. and 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 the owners that we bought the company from, when I landed in uh, Belgrave to visit the plant in uh, February, they, they created a van to pick us up in with a huge decal on the south, which is a picture of me with truly human leadership. Okay. <laughs> I felt I opened a church <laughs> in, in, in Serbia. Okay. in some ways. Absolutely. so proud to be acquired by a company. And I'll tell you one other story. We bought a company on the coast of France from a prominent French company. Our board was very concerned with investments in France because the government's very involved in controlling businesses and controlling labor. And I flew over to hear that because the workers' councils in France has to vote in favor or not in favor of the acquisition. So we were buying a French division of a prominent French company. And just picture me, ugly American flies over, sitting across the table from the workers' council for this business. And they said, Mr. Chapman, we went to Paris. We talked to the workers' council in Paris. We understand your values and we've studied them and we want you to buy our company. I felt a surge of pride as an American and have this opportunity to work with these wonderful French people. Then, just imagine this, sit on the table was a gentleman named Felipe, probably in his early 60s. He was on the work council, he looked at me and said, Mr. Chapman, could I say something? I said, sure. He said, Mr. Chapman, we've been waiting for you for 39 years and they began crying. Mm-hmm. Because governments can't create caring environments, okay? And they saw our people in Paris where we have an operation. They studied it, and they wanted to be part of an organization that actually cared about them. That is the hunger that exists in the world right now. People feel used for somebody else's success. They do not go home feeling valued and cared for, okay? And that is an issue we face in the world. It's not just an American issue. We operate all over the world. This is a universal issue. We have not taught leaders to care. We've taught leaders to use people for financial success. They may be nice people, but, you know, this is business, just business, right? It's, just, it's not just business. It is people that's where they spend 40 hours a week. So we adopt organizations, and I, I couldn't stand before a group of people and say, yeah, you know, we're going to sell you because, you know, you're not going to do that much in the future. And so, I mean, we adopt companies. We look at the people and we say, welcome to the family. Now let's go do good things.
1: Well, and, and the way that you do this, Bob, I was so, I, I read every single word was hanging, every single word that I read in your book about the way that you go into a company and you share your your culture, your vision of how it is that you operate with them. And of course, they're always like, no way, that's not possible. That's, that's pie in the sky, Disney or something, can't be right and then you enroll them into this whole space and you teach them your ways and you develop them and you don't bring in new people and and replace the people that that came with the business. So talk a little bit about the way that you come in and and acquire and adopt a new company. Well the
2: the first thing we do is that when when we have the the privilege of of inviting another group into our family uh, as is appropriate you know I work Make an effort to fly out and sit down with a diverse group of people, okay? And it could be union, non-union. It could be the office, the plant. It's just a diverse group of people that kind of represents the the body of the organization. And I will share with them our guiding principles of leadership. This is what we believe in. We are going to try to validate to you that we not only believe in it, that this is what we practice, and and. I walk through those values, I ask for questions, and it's amazing what people will tell me. And then along the journey, we ask people to say, "If, if what are we doing well and what could we do better? So constantly trying to listen to them to show that we care. And so when we invite them in, I mean, growing men and women will cry when we buy their company because one lady said, I never thought I was gonna get to work for a company that cares about me, okay? She cried. She just never thought in her life, and so, there's such a hunger for, for respect and dignity in this country that we could give them for free. We don't need to pass laws. We don't need to raise taxes. We just need to look at those people we have the privilege of leading as somebody's precious child and knowing that the way we lead them will affect their health and their marriage and the way they behave in this country. Okay? That is it. And you know, Simon Sinek, who I'm going to share with a profound statement. Simon Seneca in studying Barry Wambler and studying the Marines, he he came to the following observation. In the military, we honor those who give of themselves in service of others. And in business, we give bonuses to people who sacrifice others in service of themselves. He said, why, if we can teach military leaders that officers eat last, in other words, your primary responsibility is those young men and women in your care. Why can't we teach business leaders your primary responsibility is the men and women in your care. Your primary responsibility is that, which is what the CO roundtable was moving towards before COVID-19, recognizing that there's a lot of concern, is capitalism good for our society? A lot of dialogue about socialism because people don't feel capitalism is is helping the masses, it's helping the few. And they're trying to expand this as though we know, because again, we didn't think we had anything special. We just evolved through these revelations I told you. And so it was only when Simon Sinek came in and uh, because he had heard about it and he he spent a day, two days talking to our people and he said, I am no longer a nutty idealist. I have just seen what I dream of. I dream of of being able to walk down any street in any town in this country and tap anybody on the shoulder and say, do you like your job? And they say, no, I don't like my job. I love my job. That's the world Simon dreams of. And his statement is, if it exists, it must be possible. So he said he's no longer a nutty idealist because he saw when he talked to our people and then Bill Uri of Harvard, a world peace negotiator comes in because Simon Senek says, you got to see this place, you got to see this place. So Bill flies in, does kind of the tour Simon did and Bill stands up in front of me, this amazing world peace negotiator and says, Bob, I just saw the answer to world peace. And I said, what? You walked into a manufacturing plant in Wisconsin and you saw the answer to world peace? He said, yes, I saw a place where people genuinely care for each other. Mm -hmm. Coming from a world peace negotiator, sitting down talking with people. And Raj Satour, my co-author, said he saw grown men and women cry and tear up just trying to say what it meant to be a part of an organization that truly sent a message, we care about you, okay? Not just the customer. The customer's not number one, okay? It's not the shareholders. Our people are our primary responsibility. Now we have to do a lot of things right to be good to our people. So, um, so anyway, it's, we invite people, we share our guiding principle of leadership. Our overriding statement is we measure success by the way we touch the lives of people, okay? I came to that observation about 10 years ago when we were doing a video, somebody said you need to do a video of your company and capture the culture. So our team, you know, marketing team was doing it and they came in and said, Mr. Chapman, we're getting near the end of the video. we kind of captured all these moments, but how we want to talk about success and growth. We want to, and it's about the time of Enron and the scandal of Enron. And I said, you know, Enron had beautiful statements on the wall. They just didn't live those statements. We are not going to put them on the wall. We're going to put it on people's heads and hearts. And I began going around operation to operation saying, this is what we believe in how are we doing and people got emotional they expressed some of the areas we were inconsistent you know we, we had the people on the floor and the people in the office we had hourly people so we have all these ways of referring to human beings hourly salary you know uh, engineer and and when you look at them as everybody's child, you try and treat them with compassion and care and try and give them a the good future it's amazing how people will feedback to you what it means to them in their life okay so again 95% of the feedback when
1: we transform managers into leaders is how it affects their marriage and their relationship with their hmm okay so we're coming to the very close of the show already Bob it evaporated but the last thing I really want you to talk about because this is I think this is one of the things that makes you really really different and unique and One is you're focused on trust and and empathetic listening, but you talk about trust as being the foundation of leadership, and you say, if you trust people, they will trust you back. If you engage them in creating a shared vision for the future of the enterprise, and then give them freedom to act in support of that vision, they will do so responsibly, creatively, enthusiastically. Ordinary people can do extraordinary things if you create the right culture in a sustainable business model. Would you speak to that? Because that is so different from what normal acquisitions do. You know,
2: I, I think you have to understand my basic inherent tendency is to trust people. I would hate to live in a world where I didn't feel I was with people I could trust, okay? So when I meet somebody, I would tend to start by trusting them, okay? And so the foundation of our culture is to trust the people and give them an opportunity who they can be, who they're intended to be. And, and again, again, I, I want you to listen to you. one of the key things we teach in our leadership is the foundation for trust is value, okay? And we teach people empathetic listening. It's a three-day intense course where everybody has the chance to take it, and and it's a prof- it makes a profound impact on people. So I would say to you the core of this culture that we've now become known for truly in leadership begins with teaching people how to care for each other. You could tell your listeners all day we need to care for each other more, we need to live in society where we care, they'd say, sure, I agree, but I don't know how to care. And what does it mean? Should I have a food drive? Should I donate to charity? Well, we we don't teach people to care. We teach people to listen to each other. And and David Vonemulen, who developed this for us, was brilliant because I find it's the foundation to trust. When you feel valued by somebody, when they listen to you, I thought, at least if I cared for somebody, I should go talk to them. It turns out when you care somebody, you go listen to them with empathetic listening skills and you profoundly validate them and earn their trust because they feel valued. So trust is a result. We, don't, we didn't go at this to try and get people to trust us. We behaved in a way that showed we cared and trust was the outcome of our behavior. We, we offered people classes to, to learn. We started feeding the hungry, the people, and we wanted the people to take the classes who wanted to learn the most. Our goal was that everybody in a leadership position would have the skills of empathetic blessing, and the other skill that is really important that I want your listeners to hear is we also teach recognition and celebration. We have a society right now that focuses on the brokenness of the world. All you have to do is turn on your media, any media outlet, and you can see the brokenness in every part of our world what's it like to live, be inundated with the brokenness of the world every day? You know what it says? You can't trust anybody. In our organization, we start with a foundation of individuals. We trust you. We give you responsible freedom. We share with you where we're going and we value you. So trust is an outcome, not our goal, okay? People said they feel valued. They trust us. Uh, and so it, trust is a result of, of showing that you care, that you want people to be who they're intended to be, it, that they're safe within your care and that they can be, you know, they can grow and prosper in your company. So trust is an outcome. And that was, that's what we did in our, we didn't, again, we didn't start by trying to get people to trust us. We tried to behave in a way that showed that we respected them and trust was the outcome of our behavior and our bringing leadership fundamentals to them, them feeling safe for all these years to operate without, you know, having to hurt people. People feel a dramatic difference. I mean, it just, again, Simon Sinek-Billier, I mean, uh, the people that have been into our company from all over the world now, the McKinsey people, the Harvard people, they're visually startled at the way people in our country feel when they feel they're an organization where they can
1: trust the leaders in terms of having their best interests at heart. Oh, Bob, it's so beautiful. We're out of time, but I want to give you the last word. Um, in, say, 30 seconds or less, what would you leave our listeners and viewers with today?
2: We face some really serious issues in this country. Before COVID-19, amplified by COVID-19, further amplified by social arrest, and then on top of that, being, uh, the discourse politically. We need to give people a sense of hope and we have as business leaders, as leaders of nonprofit hospitals, the military, we have the chance to profoundly change the issues. We don't need the government to pass laws, raise taxes, change parties. We just as as leaders of every type of organization in this country, we just need to look at those people in our span of care as somebody's precious child and make sure that we are doing everything we can do to give them a future so they can trust us, they can be good stewards of their families behave properly in their community. because we've been self-destructing for economic gain and we have not got human gain which we desperately need to be in harmony with economic gain so we could deal with these issues tomorrow we don't need to change political parties raise taxes we could do it tomorrow by simply looking at the people in our span of care as somebody's precious child and saying are we being the leader that they need, they deserve so they can be who they're intended to be so Looking at that responsibility from a different lens is the key to the issues we face in this country. And we need to look for the goodness and hold it up and encourage people. This is the way we are called to be.
1: Bob, I brought you on the show because I absolutely 1,000% believe in your message and what you're saying. I echo it and I wanted to spread it. So thank you very, very much for being on the show and, and sharing your perspective with us. It's been an honor and a treat. Thank you. I so much need people like you with your voice around the world
2: so we can create a movement because I'm called to make sure that this does not die with me
1: absolutely listeners and viewers if you want to learn more about Bob Chapman and the work that they're doing with Truly Human Leadership go to there's a couple sites you can go to you can go to bobchapman.co or you can go to trulyhumanleadership.com Last week, if you missed the live show, you can always get to be, be a recorded podcast. We were on the air with Jeff Lovejoy talking about his passion, newly birthed in the pandemic, called Leader Quips, which is a weekly series of short leadership lessons accumulated over his 30 years career in sales leadership. Next week we'll be on the air with Elizabeth Lotardo talking about her book, Selling with Noble Purpose: How to Drive Revenue and Do Work That Makes You Proud. See you there. Remember that work is at least a third of our lives, so let's work on purpose.